The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Family encouraged me. Ah, come on. What's one weekend? And I did. So, but it was well worth it. So I hope you had a great time with family and friends. We pray we have so many people on the road today traveling home. So let's pray for a journey of mercy and grace. So um, this will be today, we'll be in Daniel, but then we're going to take a break for the rest of December. And we're going to be in messages about Christ, about the coming of Christ. And we'll enjoy the holiday and uh, we'll look into God's word and just bring it to a head uh, on Christmas Eve. So be much in prayer for that. And um, also we'll pick up Daniel uh, after the holiday. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer this morning. Father, we're so thankful this morning for your amazing grace. Uh, We can never thank you enough for that grace because you loved us so much that in spite of our sin, you came in the form of a man to die on that cross to pay the price for our sin so that we might be with you forever. And Lord, as we approach this Christmas season, this time that we celebrate your son's birth, may we always be mindful of that in our daily lives, and especially this morning as as we look at Daniel and his visions about the sheep and the goats and its application to us, and and all those things of prophecy that are sometimes, we admit, difficult to, to understand. I pray that in all of it, we realize that everything that happens brings us to the cross and brings us to a clear understanding of your love. So we pray this morning, we ask you to cleanse our hearts and our minds and give us a keen understanding of your word. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, if you'll turn to Daniel chapter 8, the first and second half of the book of Daniel are quite different. The first half is narrative, and the second half is prophetic. Now, there are, of course, overlaps. Uh, The first half does contain some prophecy in the case of Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the great statue composed of different types of metals. The second half also has narrative elements, too. But still, the value of the first half is an account of the way in which Daniel and his three friends uh, functioned in a pagan Babylon and how God protected them and used them in a mighty way. Uh, We understand that as God worked on their hearts, we saw great examples that we could apply to our lives today. The attitudes of the heart, the understanding of what God does in the lives of his servants, and the ability to just latch on to the reality of what God is doing. The second half also has some narrative elements to it, but as I said, it is mainly prophetic. And the second half focuses on prophecies of the end times, and not only do we sometimes clearly not understand, but we may even wonder, how is this practical to us? Particularly when we see some of the prophecies of this morning having already taken place as long as 168 B.C. ago. We wonder, is it practical? Well, it is difficult to understand and apply some of these things, but What I hope to show you this morning is that the symbolic elements and what we're learning God is doing does have a dramatic effect on us today. 
So let's look at, at this new emphasis this morning and the interpretation. Daniel has had this vision, and what we find in the latter half of the chapter is that Gabriel himself intercedes and explains it to Daniel. So picking up in Daniel 8, verse 19, he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of the Media and Persia, and the goat, the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which uh, four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the peoples who are the same. By his cunning, he shall make a deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even arise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days to come. So Daniel 8 is a vision of a ram and a goat, which gives additional detail about a period of history that has been described twice already. The initial vision of the sta uh, statue of the various kinds of metals, which Nebuchadnezzar had, uh, had and which is recorded in chapter 2, spoke of four successive world empires. The empire of Babylon, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians that followed, the Greek empire established by Alexander the Great, and the final powerful empire of Rome. The vision we now have, the vision of the ram and the goat, corresponds to the second and third parts of the initial vision. That is, the ram represents the Medes and the Persians empire, and that is why it is described as having two horns, each horn representing one half of the empire. One horn is described as being longer and more powerful than the other, just as one side of the bear is described as being higher. So this corresponds to the dominance of the Persian element of the two nation coalition. The same thing is true when we compare the visions with the four unusual animals in chapter 7. Those were, if you recall, the beast like a lion represented Babylon, a beast like a bear representing the Medes and the Persians, a beast like a leopard representing Greece, and a beast unlike any known animal representing Rome. The ram corresponds to the bear, and the goat corresponds to the leopard. So what is this new vision? What, why has this vision been given? Is it just to add detail, or is there a shift in emphasis or a new purpose? Well, an important clue to Daniel's purpose in the vision is in the fact that the language in which he is writing changes from Aramaic to Hebrew. Now, you may remember this when we touched on it early in our study, that this is a very unique to the book of Daniel, 
that parts of it are written in Aramaic and parts are written in Hebrew. Uh, interestingly, um, the Aramaic portion, well, it's, it's Hebrew from verse 1 through to chapter 2, verse 4. And then it changes to Aramaic from chapter, or chapter 2, verse 4, right through to chapter 7. So this is a very interesting purpose. And why on earth would Daniel change this prophetic la uh, language? Well, I think it's interesting, and I think what it does is it gives us an understanding of the grace of God. You see, Daniel is writing in this period of time from chapter 2, verse 4 through chapter 7 about the Gentile nations. And he's living amongst Gentiles. And I think it's unique to realize that God in his sovereign grace is making his message known to all people, not just the Gentiles. But when we come to chapter 8 and go through the end of the book, all of that is focused on Jewish prophecy. Everything there has to do with the Jews and what is coming. And so they are written in Aramaic to, to be focused on those in that land and then switch back to Hebrew to focus on things that apply to God's people. And that's a fascinating part of Scripture and God's plan because as we see the prophecy unrolling and we, we see prophecy coming as we get later on in the book about the future events, we realize that these are dealing with Israel. And this is why I personally believe that the church will be taking out, taken out before the tribulation. Because the tribulation is dealing with the Jews. The tribulation is, has 144 witnesses, which are all Jews. And it's a time when God is taking his covenant one last time and giving it to his people. So what we are going to see here is that these chapters deal with a particular era of Jewish history. They predict the end of an era and thus anticipate a new era of Gentile and Jewish blessing. So this brings us to the second horn. The chief new element of this vision and the part that particularly uh, is concerns the Jews in this period is the prediction of another little horn who would desecrate the sanctuary and persecute the people of the beautiful land. And I say another little horn because it would be a mistake to confuse this individual with the little horn of chapter 7. The little horn of chapter 7 is connected with the fourth of the four kingdoms, that being Rome. Daniel describes the Roman Empire as existing in ten related kingdoms represented by ten toes of Nebuchadnezzar's statue the ten horns of the fourth terrible beast of Daniel 7. The little horn of chapter 7 uproots and replaces three of the horns. By contrast, the little horn of chapter 8 rises from the kingdom of Greece. He does not replace any other uh, rulers. He merely rises from them in due course. Look at Daniel 8, verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. So his destructive energies are directed against the Jewish people and their sanctuary. And there can be little doubt that this is prob the prophecy of the career of the Greek king Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who was one of the great enemies of the Jewish people in all of history. 
Uh, Antiochus IV was the eighth king of the Seleucid dynasty, which was which is was itself one of the four powers. If you recall that when um, when Alexander was killed, his his dynasty was broken up into four separate kingdoms, and this king Antiochus comes from one of those kingdoms. So Daniel eight verse twenty three says, and at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit. A king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall rise. And this is exactly what he was. He began by usurping the throne from his nephew, and immediately after that launched a campaign of ruthless conquest in the Near East in about 170 B.C. Then he invaded Egypt, and then in Jerusalem he tried to impose religious and cultural uniformity. Now, this is interesting. He tried to usurp cultural uniformity by putting a stop to Jewish worship. He put an end to the daily sacrifices in the temple, and he forbade uh, the circumcision of the Jewish infants, and he made it a crime to possess Jewish scriptures. All this came to a head in about 168 B.C., when Antiochus seized, the, seized Jerusalem by treachery. He sent his great Apollos into the city, his general, with 20,000 troops, and there erected an idol of Zeus in the temple area. And then he desecrated the altar by offering swine there. This was the great affront to all faithful Jews, and it became known to the Jews as the abomination of desolation mentioned in Daniel 11, verse 51. And later on, it served as a type of that final desolation uh, when the Antichrist comes to power. So look at the two comparisons here of the, of the first one of Antiochus and then the second one of, of the Antichrist. Daniel 11, verse 31. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortresses and shall take away the regular burnt offerings and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolation. And then we see, talking about uh, the Antichrist, Matthew 24, verse 15, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So the Jews will have a working knowledge of history of what took place in 168 B.C., and when they see it again, in the tribulation, they're going to know and understand what's happening. So Daniel says that this little horn would consider himself superior, uh, Daniel 8.25. And this was certainly true of Antiochus. His name comes from the inscription that he had minted on coins when he was in power. The coin said, Theos Epiphanes, God made manifest. So he thought quite highly of himself. And during the reign of this man, this pious, the pious Jews experienced a time of unparalleled suffering. So the question comes, given that this particular prophecy has taken place long ago, what practicality does it have for us today? What is there about this piece of prophecy that's already been fulfilled, and how do we make that of any sense for us today? Because all God's people should read the word of God 
as having been written, written years before. Because it has been. God writes his word. He gives you the Holy Spirit that leads you into all understanding. And the word of God is his tool to us to guide us every step of the way. And since we know that the scripture says that all scripture is profitable, then we have to read these things and know there's, there's profitability here for me. What do I take from these scriptures? How does this affect us today? Well, at the conclusion of the chapter, Daniel describes his reaction to the vision and an explanation given by the angel Gabriel. And look how Daniel responds, verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision, and I didn't understand it. Now, it's important to note here that when Daniel says he didn't understand it, we're not to think that he was unable to understand what was foretold to him, particularly when Gabriel gave him the understanding. So it wasn't that he didn't understand what the vision was about or where it was going. His confession of failure to understand the vision must refer to his failure to understand why the devastation, the destruction, and the persecution of his people, which the vision foretold should be necessary. And don't you feel like that sometimes when you watch the news and you hear about senseless slaughtering of people? When you, when you hear about invasions, or you hear about those that are wreaking havoc on countries with plans to do it, don't you just sit back sometime and say, God, why? Where are you? Why are you allowing this? And you see, Daniel, though he is an amazing man of tremendous godly character, he's a human like you and I, and it made him literally sick. In fact, so sick, he couldn't get out of bed for several days. This man was crushed by what he had seen. And you and I are often crushed when we see what is going to happen or take place to God's people. It was the reason he was appalled. <coughs> he was appalled in the same way that any of us would be if God showed us of some destruction that was to come to those people. But all this is past, of course, at least if our interpretation is correct. We can see how this affected Daniel, but what does it have to do with us? Well, this brings us back to the initial problem that I mentioned at the beginning. Our grasping the understanding of God's word is most problematic. This has already been done. It's already taken place. Let me give you two main reasons why you and I should be able to make this application to the word of God, why it is critically important. Number one, the God of the Bible is the true God. Now, predictive prophecy teaches us that the God of the Bible is the true God. This is because the only way that prophecies can come true is if God stands behind them. The true God who alone is able to determine the outcome of history. And what have we been saying week in and week out? One of the key things with Daniel is God controls history. 
if the God of the Bible is not the true God, if another bigger God or even no God at all stands behind them, then the God of the Bible cannot control what is not of the Bible. Then the prophecies of the Bible given in his name will not come to fulfillment. But this is not what is happening. The fact that you and I can look back on these prophecies and see their clear fulfillment exactly as Daniel has given us gives all of us the clear understanding that God is God. And if he was in control back then, he is just in control today. You and I know the scriptures if we've been saved for any length of time. We know what's coming. Now, we may differ on our belief of prophecy about when things happen, and, and that's okay. Uh, a lot of the great men who study the scriptures are at odds with certain times and, and, and places and when things happen. Some things we just won't know till we get to heaven. But the reality is we can look back and see that what God through his prophets prophesied has come to force exactly as he said it. So you and I can not only look to the future and know exactly what he forecast is coming will happen, but we know the present. And this is what makes verses like Romans 8, 28 so valuable. Because we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, now think about that in a prophetic context. God, before the foundation of the earth, knew you. And when it came time that the Holy Spirit removed the scales from your eyes and gave you understanding and drew you to Christ, when you gave your life to Christ, do you realize that you are part of God's prophetic plan? And do you further realize that everyone here this morning who names the name of Christ fits precisely into God's economy exactly where he wants you to be? You are not only eternally important to God, you are a vital part of his plan. You are a vital part of his plan for this day and for you. So when you get up in the morning and you're rushing around to get ready for work and rushing to do the things you have to do and you're speeding out the door, stop and think for a moment that that day is still ahead. And the plan for that day has been fulfilled. And he is going to use you in an amazing way if you surrender to him. And that's one of the great beauties of the indwelling Holy Spirit and why we're talking about, you know, him increasing and me decreasing, because as the Spirit takes over your life, He is guiding you down that plan that God has allowed you for. And what could be more important than for all of us to get up in the morning and know this is the day that He has planned, and I'm going to enjoy it with the goodness of God. Because all of us are going to have to make decisions. And I have an encouragement and a confidence in the past to know that today and tomorrow fits all perfectly into his plan. This is the key part to understand about prophecy. Second key part, number two, prophecy proves that the Bible is the true and trustworthy revelation of God. We know God's in control, but now we know that the word he has given us is perfect and trustworthy. 
this, and I think this is probably one of the best illustrations of this. We could, we could pick them out all through Scripture. But the one I enjoy probably is the story of Micah. Uh, it's a wonderful illustration of this point. Micah lives in the northern kingdom of Israel at the time when Ahab, the king of Israel, wanted to go to war against the king of Aram uh, to capture Ramoth Gilead. He persuaded Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, to go with him. But Jehoshaphat wanted to consult the Lord first. When you read the story, it's kind of interesting because Ahab is a go, 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 get it. And Jehoshaphat is, well, just, just wait on the Lord. So he, he, he agreed to that. And he called 400 of the paid court prophets together. And he asked them straight up, shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? Uh, the story is in 1 Kings 22, if you want to read it on your own. These men knew who was paying him. So they wanted to tell him what he wanted to hear. And so these 400 prophets said, that, yeah, go, go to battle, and the Lord will protect you. So this was more than enough for Ahab. But Jehoshaphat had a little more spiritual discernment, and I think you could see through this. And so he asked, look, is there any other prophet that we could go to? Just kind of like, like a backup plan to make sure. Well, Ahab's answer was brilliant, and, and you should read it. But 1 Kings 22, verse 8, he says, And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micah, the son of Imlah. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. Well, you know, you would think that maybe I should listen to what this guy is saying. So right off the bat, we know there's history here between the two. So... As, as, this, as this point is being developed, there's a humorous uh, exchange between Ahab and Jehoshaphat. And uh, we find that when the messenger first reaches Micah, he wanted him to say exactly what the king wanted to hear. So he's gone to him, he's clued him in. Look, look, you've got to say what he wants to hear. But Micah's response in 1 Kings twenty two fourteen is, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that so Micah doesn't mess around. So when you, you see the picture painted in this story, when, when Micah is, is getting there, the geographical area, you know, we find that the prophets were all sitting around the walls and, and, and the soldiers were all around the valley and they were watching Micah walk through and, and make his way. Kind of looked like I, I could picture a Cecil B. DeMille Bible epic, you know, with thousands of people sitting around and Jesus knew nothing about it. And interestingly enough, when, when they get there, uh, Micah finally stands before the king, and he mockingly answers the prophet. And he says exactly what the prophet had already said. Attack and be victorious, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. Now, this is why you know there's history between the two, because Ahab understood that this wasn't genuine. And Ahab said in verse 16, but the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So when you begin to think about this, Ahab wants to go to battle. He knows Mike is not going to tell him what he wants to hear. And when Micah tells him what he wants to hear, he knows he's not genuine. 
And so he scolds him for it. Like, tell me the truth. Well, Micah tells him the truth. Verse 17. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And what is Ahab's response? Verse 18. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? I mean, this is hilarious when you think about it. Ahab is not hearing what Ahab wants to hear. And he's literally fighting the prophet of God. And what makes this so sad is you can tell by the exchange, Ahab knows the difference. He understands what truth really is. So at this point, Michael went on with more details, including a specific prediction of Ahab's death. So how did Ahab respond? He had Micah thrown in prison. Had him thrown in prison. But as they were dragging Micah to the prison, Micah cried out in verse 28, If you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Well, that's the last we hear of Micah. But we do know what happened at the end. He was killed in battle. And the people were scattered, each one to his own town, exactly as Micah predicted. Now, when you look at this exchange, you look at it and you understand, man, this is crazy. I mean, what was wrong with Ahab? His paid guys told him what he wanted to hear. But the real man came and told him what he didn't want to hear. That he so badly wanted his own way that he ignored the word of God and got himself in trouble. You talk about learning from prophecy. But let me ask you a question. How often do you in your life want something so bad that you're willing to let it go? You're willing to take the risk because you just want your own way. I've been there. You tell me you're not. Because our human nature always replicates. We want things to be just the way we want them. And some God, sometimes God says, no. Because my plan will be accomplished more by you letting me have my way than me letting you have your way. My ways are greater than your ways. My plan is greater than yours. You're looking at this one period in time. I'm looking at the whole picture. Trust me. And this is what Micah was trying to say to Ahab. Don't go. Don't go. Because you just have your way. As you and I look at prophecy and we see what's already been fulfilled down through the ages, it's important for us to recognize that the same God who guided and made everything come through is the same God working in your life right now. He is the same God who authored the scriptures, the volume of 66 books, where he included all these amazing prophetic things. We may not fully understand them all. We may not get the, the animals and goats and horns, and it may be a struggle for us, but the one thing we can know for sure, if God said it, it's come to pass. And if God has put it in writing, 
you and I need Jesus. So the greatest practical application of prophetic prophecy that's already been fulfilled is to take it very personally. Take it very personally. I thank God I don't have to go through I know there's going to be things in my life that I have no control over. Thank God he does. Praise God that he is in control of every aspect of my life. And you talk about encouragement. You talk about being able to wake up in the morning with shouts of joy and go to bed at night knowing God is delivering every step of the way and he'll be with you through it all. Because he is in control. So the point is quite obvious. God, the true God, has spoken through Micah, his prophet. And because it was God who had spoken, the word of God through Micah could be trusted. What you and I need to do is to be certain that his words are right. that we love to put on Facebook, that we love to share with people. This is real. This is absolutely real. And I can stake my life on the fact we see prophecy reading for the future. We're not there yet. If we live long enough, we're going to see a lot of things happening, but we can rest assured that God So this morning, as you sit here, is to put it all together. What is God wanting to say What specific things has he called you to fulfill? What gift has he equipped you to accomplish his purposes? All of us have been called. And I'll tell you, I've seen a lot of ministries where some of you said, his glory, I fall into line. I'm in his will. But the message is the place of exhilaration and delight and confidence in what he has done. And that's the part that God wants us to do. So, will we be faithful? Will we walk in his purposes? Or will we be like Lord, we know that prophecy quite often is difficult to understand. And as we continue in Daniel after the holiday, we'll see future prophecy that's very difficult. But we know that it's part of your ultimate plan. Help us not to look at these prophecies, but look at them through the confidence of a creator who has put all things in motion and put them in motion for our Thank you, Lord, for your glory. I trust you. You will continue to do it. I know you will continue to do it. And may we all be able to praise you for working that out in each one of our hearts. That our joy 
world and everyone we come in contact with see the reality of Christ in us and his work. We ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus.